Today on The Lab Report, we are interviewing Bridget Tijemeyer. Beingbridget.com. Yeah, and we're going to get her thoughts on all things functional nutrition. Cool. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Yeah. I don't know, because it gets me all confused. Yeah, well... Happens a You're lot. not the only one. I know. You're not the only one Trust around me. here. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Michael. Hi, Patty Devers. Welcome to the Lab Report. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome, all listeners, to the Lab Report. And if you like this show, mm-hmm. what should me, they do? Let me tell you what you should do. Go ahead. You should go to iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is that you're listening to this. Right. Subscribe, mm. rate us. Leave us a little review. That would be excellent. Yeah, I always, I always say hit the like button, but there is no like button. I don't no. know why I always say that. It's like don't hit the imaginary <laughs> like button. That's not going to do anything no, for us. It's not. <laughs> it's really not. <laughs> well, what are we doing today, Michael? Today we are talking to Bridget Tijemeyer. Yay! Wait, the Bridget Tijemeyer? Yes, the one from the website. Beingbridget.com. That website. That's the website I'm talking about. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. You know what? What? Instead of bantering. Let's just... Yeah, enough. Enough of the banter. Let's just, just, just call her. Let's just do this thing. Go. So, Patty. Yeah. I would just like to say that we are thrilled and honored to have on Bridget Tijemeyer on the lab report. Uh, a little bit about Bridget. Bridget's a registered dietitian nutritionist with board certification in integrative and functional nutrition. Bridget was one of the founding dietitians at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, where she worked and trained under Dr. Mark Hyman. She also teaches a graduate-level functional nutrition course at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And in 2018, she launched her own nutrition business, Being Bridget Functional Nutrition, and a functional nutrition blog, beingbridget.com. Her signature program is a VIP next-level nutrition program that offers one-on-one coaching for executives to better understand their personalized nutrition needs. And uh, just uh, thank you so much, Bridget, for Welcome. being on the Lab Report. Welcome, Welcome to the Lab Report. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, of You're- course. Well, I think to start out, Bridget, why don't you tell us a little bit about your path to functional medicine? Yeah, I'd love to. I started on the patient side in functional medicine and I actually, the funny thing is before doing, before recording this podcast, I pulled out prior to Genova, owning Genova, I, the functional medicine doctor that I saw had run labs by Great Smokies bag, not purchasing. It's a throwback. So I, I pulled out my uh, lactulose mannitol test from 2005 that I was just looking through. Um, so, <laughs> we can so I ter- started on the patient side. Yeah, let us know if you want to interpret that on air. We can go ahead and set some time aside. But um, I was diagnosed with narcolepsy, having cataplexies with the narcolepsy when I was about 14 or 15. And that put my parents, that sent my parents and I down this whole track. And of course, you know, that long ago, they were very ahead of their time, fortunately, because the neurologist that I had seen at the Cleveland Clinic that diagnosed me had said that it was a genetic disorder and that I'd have it for the rest of my life, that it would 
progressed as I got older and that there was nothing that I could do except to take this pharmaceutical drug that was very new to the market. And my parents were like, we think we're going to optimize other areas of her health first. And as a teenager, I thought my parents were so absurd and, you know, criticized them for not being medical doctors and thinking that they could, you know, like disregard what the neurologist was telling us at the time. But um, fortunately, they even though they have no background in medicine, they had a lot of great common sense. And we ended up finding a holistic medicine doctor. And through changing a lot of my dietary intake and supplements, was able to really go on a super low dose of medication eventually and manage my symptoms. I haven't had, I used to have about 20 to 30 cataplexies, which are many seizures that last for about five to 10 seconds, they would last for me. I haven't had one of those in about 10 years. So it's really amazing the what food and nutrition has done, especially, you know, at the time my pediatric neurologist hated the idea of functional medicine so much Mm. and promised that there was no research that nutrition has anything to do with uh, narcolepsy that he ended up refusing to continue seeing me. So I started seeing an adult neurologist at the time. Then it was really came full circle when we started the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine 10 years later at the same hospital that had, you know, at that point denied us the idea of functional medicine to make Mm. it accessible to thousands of people, which was really why, you know, as a teenager, I decided I was going to become a dietitian because I'm like, I need to help other people realize that there's things that they can do with their own health, even if mainstream medicine hasn't fully caught up to that idea. So it's been a great journey. And actually, last year, I spoke to a group of about 300 neurologists for the Cleveland Clinic Annual Sleep Disorder Symposium to talk about why the neurologists and PAs and healthcare practitioners can no longer ignore nutrition as a part of the conversation. So that's cool. It's been a really mm-hmm. rewarding. Um, it's like full circle. I know that is cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which I know is really the case for pretty much every functional medicine practitioner that I meet, right? Is that yeah, you common. are typically brought into the field because of your own health journey or a family member's health journey where you've seen some of the deficiencies yeah. that are among our acute care model within the conventional medical system. Yeah. And I also think it's so important for for us as clinicians to share those personal stories as well. It's it's really a good reminder um, as to why we kind of got into this and why we got to this particular orientation. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent, because I also think that it increases the empathy that you have for patients and allowing patients to feel like you're a human versus a practitioner that has very poor bedside manner that seems more robotic. I feel like when, you know, that therapeutic relationship is such a core part of functional medicine that really helps, I think it's emphasized and enhanced by our own personal struggles. Yeah. Right. Well, let me ask you this. You know, you talk about functional nutrition uh, quite a bit on your your website. So in your mind, what what is it that differentiates functional nutrition from more conventional nutrition? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. So a pretty similar, from a larger standpoint, similar to some of the things that are distinguishing factors between conventional medicine and functional medicine, where in conventional nutrition, which is the way that dietitians are traditionally taught in their curriculum that exists. You know, we know that 
medical curriculum is outdated, nursing curriculum is outdated, dietitian curriculum is outdated. So it's kind of the same concerns that seem to be outdated and driven by a lot of larger industries, uh, food industry, pharmaceutical industry, those kinds of things, and uh, focus more on the idea of calorie counting and uh, everything in moderation and uh, not as much focus on quality. Like I remember when I was running a diabetic workshop in undergrad and we replaced Cool Whip on the menu with Diet Cool Whip. I personally did not, I have to say, but I was a <laughs> part of this workshop that I was in. My teacher was the one that had the idea of adding the Diet Cool Whip. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how is this educational in any way at all? <laughs> adding, you know, these chemicals. And at the time, it, you know, I think that, of course, now that we have more literature to support the idea of, uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity that it's maybe becoming more common in curriculum now for dietitians that are going through school. But at that time, certainly the idea, I've been gluten-free for since, you know, I went through my health issues in 2005 and I was kind of like made to feel, I never told anyone that I was gluten-free in my nutrition classes because I felt kind of ashamed because it made it seem like if you were gluten-free outside of having celiac disease that you just that there was something in your head (laughs) so I would say that those kind of things it's not as much focused on personalized nutrition so even in just comparing when I was at the Cleveland Clinic which of course has amazing um, programs for people on both the conventional and the functional side but when you meet with a dietitian in conventional nutrition you're going to get handed like a handout of a low hypertension or a low sodium diet for hypertension, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the education is focused on that one specific thing without having as much of an awareness around all of the factors that we know contribute to the nutritional needs of an individual. Mm -hmm. And when you meet with a functional dietitian, I would say that at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, the amazing thing that I credit Dr. Hyman with so much is that he at both the Ultra Wellness Center and the Cleveland Clinic requires all the patients to see a dietitian for um, if they're seeing a doctor. Right. And so he has a team of dietitians at both places. And we would go through a very thorough history, you know, through lifestyle matrix of every single factor that we would review pretty much like the same information that was coming into the doctor that was geared towards their medical history, their drugs to think of any kind of like drug nutrient interactions in addition to, which are common in a hospital-based setting, but then the additional layer would be providing that um, personalized nutrition support. So identifying the best plan for each individual versus just making blanket recommendations around like, oh, everyone that comes in should follow this this elimination diet, which, um, you know, I think from just understanding people's history and what they've tried before their relationship with food, because what I really experienced since being on my own for the last two years in private practice is that I, I ask very specific questions about people's relationship with food and history of eating disorders or disordered eating. And it's so common and there's so much shame around food that I think that sometimes we think that we're doing a good job or a good thing that's well-intentioned that I've even myself fallen into. Yeah. And then you realize that you actually are, can really be harming that person in the long term. So I think that functional nutrition is really focused on 
meeting the person where they're at and providing personalization around all of the potential ways that nutrition can optimize a person's health and get to the root cause of what's happening. Yeah, that's that's really intriguing. And it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. But just to kind of build on something that you just mentioned there, first of all, you said that you had been gluten-free without a history of celiac. And we know that a first step in a lot of functional practices is to make a patient gluten-free or dairy-free, and it's becoming fairly common. Is that something you start with, first of all? And the follow-up question to that is kind of what you were just saying. How how afraid are you to, to start leading a patient down that food fear path of orthorexia? Right. So it's something that's always on my radar because I've seen people that have been working with practitioners in functional medicine for several years who have been on something like an anti-candida diet for three years. And then I ask, why are you still on this anti-candida diet? It's been three years. And they're like, well, no one talks to me about reintroducing foods. I thought this is how I'm supposed to eat for the rest of my life. And they have debilitating fear around food. And when you think, of course, of the impact that has on the gut microbiome, the stress-induced response that's occurring from people that are, you know, like that you're creating more stress in their life around food fears that can be Mm long-lasting, I think that it's important to, to identify all of the aspects around changing a person's diet before going full-blown into, you know, removing gluten and dairy. Of course, I would say that in my own practice, I end up probably 60% of the people that I work with, I end up recommending gluten-free and dairy-free and believe that those two, if we're looking from a food sensitivity standpoint, that those two are the most likely contributors to leaky gut, especially Mm -hmm. gluten, you know, from the research that we have on leaky gut that's going to be like those diet and proteins are the most problematic and creating those separations in the tight junctions and and possibly dairy as well. Dairy, I also think, you know, can be problematic not only from a protein standpoint of the reactivity to typically casein, but then in sometimes way, but typically casein. And then um, also the the lactose side of house because there's just such a high prevalence of lactose intolerance uh, throughout the world. And, also thinking about the um, possibility of if a person is, you know, choosing poor quality dairy, the possibility of dairy increasing the production of their insulin-like growth factor that is going to, you know, especially be problematic when cows are injected with the recombinant bovine growth mm-hmm. hormone. But I think it is, you know, there's just so many things to be considering. Is it is it dairy itself? Is it that the quality of dairy is low? Is it that the person is lactose intolerant? And so I try to kind of better understand all of those things and allow the patient to guide me in helping them understand the responsiveness, that the reactivity that they're having to certain foods that they're eating. Yeah. And I guess that's that gets back to the personalized approach, the functional nutrition approach, and what makes that so unique is that you're, you know, you're really taking into account all these factors when you're discussing diet with the patient. Yeah, a hundred percent. Tell me about just changing topics a little bit. The ketogenic diet, you know, it's gaining a lot of press as an intervention today. There's a lot of people adopting the ketogenic diet. Um, what's your experience utilizing the ketogenic diet in practice and do you have any reservations about the rapid trend of people who are adopting the ketogenic diet these days? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. So I am an advocate of the ketogenic diet overall. 
when it's clinically relevant, I think that it can have very therapeutic outcomes, especially metabolically. And when a person starts to fuel off of ketones and is able to lower their blood sugar levels, improve their insulin sensitivity, there's so many reported benefits that I think we're starting to learn about with the ketogenic diet, especially in the last five years when it comes to even just lowering cravings because of the ways that it alters your um, GLP-1 and uh, leptin and ghrelin and the ability to give the pancreas a break. Uh, mm-hmm. I explain it to people as a pancreas holiday because your pancreas <laughs> is you know, working so hard mm-hmm. so much um, by being able to lower their insulin and hopefully improve the cell sensitivity to insulin and, uh, of course, lowering the, the blood glucose levels. I also... You know, can, and then advocate of it from the standpoint of improving arterial health because we know that insulin resistance and diabetes can be so damaging to a person's arteries. And also, you know, for people that aren't even in the diabetic zone, but that have those elevated blood glucose levels, that that can create the small holes in their arterial lining that can ultimately lead to the plaque buildup and higher levels of inflammation, thinking about, you know, the anti-inflammatory properties of the beta-hydroxybutyrate specifically, you know, for lowering inflammation, which I think is, I've seen it be used fairly successfully with patients that have autoimmune diseases and uh, cancer. You know, I really think that the future of cancer interventions is going to in some way incorporate either intermittent fasting or the ketogenic diet, just given its ability to improve the cancer cell sensitivity to to chemo and other more conventional interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many therapeutic benefits that can come from it, but I also am not going to say that I think ketogenic is a great option for everyone. My concern lays mostly in a person's gut health because I've seen after initiating ketogenic diets, you know, a significantly decreased level in short-chain fatty acids. My concern also is in some of the research possible elevations in lipopolysaccharide levels with the the use of a high-fat diet and, of course, dysbiosis being a concern. So I know that that it all depends on how you approach the ketogenic diet and that if the person's getting enough fiber and prebiotics in their diet that that should help to, you know, like even out some of those concerns, but I still find it to be a little tricky. The other area that I think is concerning is for people that are more toxic, that are not going to be as responsive to a ketogenic diet and probably won't adapt to something as drastic as a ketogenic diet as quickly. The other experience that I had a few years ago when we started this nutrition, uh, we were running a lot of um, group nutrition visits. They're like shared medical appointments, but for nutrition. Mm-hmm. And it was a group of diabetics that were resistant to their medications and their insulin. Their hemoglobin A1Cs were out of control. And I created a ketogenic nutrition session that was that lasted 10 weeks. And put them on a ketogenic diet and reviewed all of their health history before and modified it to each individual accordingly. But what we found was that the hypoglycemic episodes without them regularly meeting with their endocrinologist was a little bit scary because they, they went from being so non, 
responsive to the medications and the insulin, but then they were so quickly responsive to the Um, dietary intervention mm -hmm. that um, they were having to adjust their medication on their own because within, for some of them within six days of being on the diet, they were on too high of a dose of their medication. Wow. Right. That's amazing. And you know what? So I think it's something to really consider when a person is, you know, especially since almost half of America is either pre-diabetic or diabetic and 10% of individuals that have, that, you know, have type 2 diabetes are going to be on some kind of insulin or medication that really needs to be monitored closely and is going to be best when worked in conjunction with an endocrinologist. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, what's unfortunate is a lot of patients out there don't consult a dietitian. They go to Dr. Google and they start the ketogenic diet. And the concerning part is some of them adopt a really high fat diet. And we all know that we should only be eating healthy fat. What, what's your take on the high fat intake and more concern? Is there more concern around saturated fats specifically? That's a good question. I think I said that for all of your questions. <laughs> so I think that there's, of course, so much controversy in nutrition. I started out before we opened the Center for Functional Medicine in 2014. I started with a lifestyle medicine group that was practicing, you know, Dr. Esselstyn's nutrition plans that are vegan and no fats and oils and Dr. Ornish's program that was able to show, of course, Dean Ornish is, you know, amazing. As is Dr. Esselstyn, I I view both of them as huge (laughs) pioneers, being able to demonstrate in the 80s that, you know, nutritional interventions can create therapeutic outcomes for cardiovascular patients. So they, just that their dietary approach alters uh, or is very different than others. So I went from that world of a lot of education around lowering fat consumption to then seeing a lot of Dr. Hyman's patients with him and being like, you want me to do what? (laughs) That's at least how it felt at first. And (laughs) so it's interesting because I've seen people that respond very well to high fat diets and that saturated fats do not seem to be a concern when they're, when we're monitoring their lipids. But then in really especially lowering their small, dense LDL particles and changing the particle size to be larger, uh, more fluffy particles, which is, of course, the ideal. Mm-hmm. So I've seen those kinds of outcomes, but then I've also seen the opposite where people's cholesterol levels go up, their small LDL particles go up. And so, again, it comes back to the personalization. I do think that about... Uh, one fourth of the population is a carrier of ApoE4 genetic mutation. And I am particularly aware, you know, I, I try to know whether the people that I'm working with now in my own practice are a carrier of the one or two ApoE4 genes because right, right. I think that, you know, from the research that we have, of course, it's more preliminary as is all nutrition research, but they may not respond well to saturated fat. So in those individuals, I recommend absolutely no going out of your way to add coconut oil or MCT oil or those kinds of things that can be integrated, you know, very commonly in functional medicine nutrition plans. Mm -hmm. And I think for the rest of the population that saturated fat have recently with, you know, the idea of, 
fat doesn't make you fat. And of course, we need healthy fats and that people were had really decreased their consumption way too much. But now I'm seeing it go to the opposite end of the spectrum where people are like, oh, healthy fats are healthy. So I should be, you know, really not eating carbs and eating a lot of saturated fats and uh, monounsaturated fats. And I try to limit my clients intake of saturated fats to about 20 grams per day. Or recommend that they limit it to about 20 grams per day because I still believe that there's there's enough research to show that it's something that we shouldn't be eating unlimited amounts. And I think for healthy fats, they're very important and that for a person, of course, that's on a ketogenic diet, they would be eating a lot higher in fat. And I think that the amount of fat that a person is going to benefit from and their diet would be higher than what the dietary guidelines for Americans is recommending. But at the same time, um, I've also seen when, especially when people get off of the ketogenic diet, that they still in their mind view fat as being beneficial and that you have to, you know, like really go out of your way to get enough. Yeah. And that it then can lead to like they're increasing their carbohydrates, even though they aren't high glycemic carbohydrates, but it puts them in a difficult position where it puts them at risk of you know, weight gain, inflammation, changes in their cholesterol profile when it's like um, too much fat in addition to um, more moderate slash higher carbohydrate intake. I think that high fat diets work well when there is no added sugar in the diet and when the glycemic index is super low, but that it can't, you can't have both. Right. 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 Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's all really fantastic information. I totally, totally agree with that, that, I don't know, the the issues around people adopting this high fat diet and how it's, it's very easy to go from one particular end of the extreme to the other. And how, again, coming back to personalized interventions, personalized nutrition, you know, it's funny, you mentioned testing for ApoE4 in patients and Earlier, you mentioned uh, lactulose mannitol testing. Is there any group of lab tests that you are running on a regular basis? Like, what do you what do you find are your go to lab tests that uh, keep you on top of uh, managing your your patients from a functional perspective? Yeah, so I think that sometimes I feel like I use labs. Where now, when I see a person and they ask me a very very simple nutrition question. I'm like, well, it would depend. It would depend on what your numbers are for this and for this. Right, right. You know, sometimes when, especially when it comes to lower uh, socioeconomic status interventions, that you can still have benefit with just getting people to eat more whole foods, given that 60% of the population is eating ultra processed foods. And that we know that that increases a person's risk of death by over 10%. So I think that, of course, I want to just preface that, but yeah. I do use them in my practice. And honestly, the one that I'm the most consistent with that I think every person has done that works with me is the adrenal cortex test because yeah. so much of what I'm seeing is stress-induced. And I want to make sure, especially because I work with a lot of executives that have high-paced lifestyles and high-paced jobs, that I have to provide them with data to understand that this is what's happening on a physiological level. Yeah. You know, telling them to meditate and, and breathe more doesn't work very well. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, that's, I'm it, sure plenty of people have patients that they know <laughs> of that that's the case for. <laughs> right. 
Michael Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Might be the case. I think it is. Um, you know, another big group of individuals that that particular test makes a lot of sense for as well is um, athletes and people trying to optimize their health. You know, how much do you work with the high performance individual, the athletes, and uh, what are some clinical pearls that you could offer when trying to, to optimize their like peak performance? Yeah, that's a great point. So I work with several CrossFit. They're not ultra CrossFit athletes, but they're more of along the lines of executives that do CrossFit five to six times per week. Yeah. Well. And are trying to optimize their performance through nutrition and, you know, are at the, t- at the point that they're also trying to be very proactive in tracking their blood glucose levels and their cholesterol levels and are at the age that that is starting to creep up a little bit. So in working with those individuals, running a cortex test is extremely valuable to help to make sure that they aren't taxing their body with constant stress and ignoring the necessary support for the HPA axis. So I like to just compare it to the fact that, you know, exercise is very good, but it puts us in this like pro adrenaline cortisol state that may not be the best combination with being in a pro cortisol adrenaline state all day long. So that there's no balance and that if you go all day without having any parasympathetic activity involved, even if that's just short-term bouts of deep breathing, that if you go from running throughout that all day in your sympathetic zone and then you you leave there to rush to the CrossFit gym or you wake up and you cut off your sleep at 4.30 a.m. to get to the CrossFit box by 5, that, you know, then you're starting your day in that that sympathetic state with then go, go, go all day long after that. And then they usually you know, are having issues with sleep and so many other things because their body doesn't even know what it's like to rest and digest. Right. So I view this, you know, everything that we do as a training, you have to train your body and allow it to understand what it's like to be in rest and digest state and also um, what it can be like to be in fight or flight, which our bodies typically know all too well. So I really make sure that I'm supporting their HPA access and I think without that, I have not been successful in getting people results. Yeah. Uh, but that at the same time, there's a really amazing book. Have you guys read Peak Performance? No. No, I haven't read that. It's a great book written by two men that peaked in their one in their track performance. And he was, you know, this amazing runner. And the other that peaked, he had an amazing career very early in his 20s that he, they both burned out. And so they write this book about how we have to be prioritizing rest just as much as we prioritize the times that we're on. Mm-hmm. And that the mistake that most in, most athletes make is that they don't take rest as seriously as they take their training. And in order to have really optimal training, you have to get just as serious about your resting time and be extremely intentional versus passive where your resting time is just like scrolling through your iPhone that mm-hmm. you're like, scheduling it and you're prioritizing it in the same way that you do your actual training. I like that. So that's a huge one um, in order to help to get some results. I also think that adequate consumption of carbohydrates is important. Either people are eating way too many carbohydrates or they're really not eating enough carbohydrates to restore those glycogen 
source. Mm-hmm. And because CrossFit is such a high intensity workout, it significantly increases the glucose demand on the body. So I will recommend very like whole food sources of carbohydrates and also really like skipping out on the refined carbohydrates because even paleo foods can be very high in added sugar because of the honey and the maple syrup and things like that that are added. So I would say that and then making sure that they're micronutrients, that they have adequate levels of those because it's going to, of course, decrease their ability to actually break down those carbohydrates, fat, and protein and convert it to ATP. Also, like really making sure that we're enhancing their relationship with food is a big one for me because I think that if you only view food as fuel, you miss out on its ability to provide love and connection and nourishment from a place of being kind and loving to yourself. And so I think that, you know, like instead of viewing it, as just this like rigid macro approach that so many people come in to me with that that's all they've done is like, you know, an RP strength kind of approach that they know every single number of carbohydrates and every single food. Mm -hmm. Um, But they, it's something that they've always seen as something they need to limit and monitor and control versus something that they need to focus on getting enough nourishment. Does right. that make sense? Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I really like those, Bridget. Those are profound. You're like the athlete whisperer. Those are great. <laughs> those are <laughs> yeah. Thank you. But when, when Michael read your bio, um, he talked about your functional nutrition blog being Bridget, which is how Michael and I came to know you. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that blog and what clinicians and patients can expect when they go to visit beingbridget.com. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. So I started it just because a lot of clients had said that they wanted the recipes that I was talking about and the appointments and wanted to provide whole food-based recipes that none of them actually have gluten or dairy and they also are very low in sugar because I found that so many food blogs have you know, a lot of sugar in them. So Mm -hmm. that is an outlet for that. And then also I write informative based articles on nutrition and that has also been, you know, evolved into my own practice where I have my VIP next level practice that you talked about in my bio. And that's where I am um, seeing my clients and working with them on a six month basis to really create personalized nutrition recommendations that support them for changing their life versus, you know, recommending a 10-day detox diet or something along those lines. Right. I'm spending a lot of my time supporting them in my practice, and then I'm also working on an online course for cardiometabolic health, and I'm in the future going to be working on some mentorship for other nutrition professionals because it seems like... A lot of functional medicine doctors, even that I've met through my IFM training and other things have said, you know, it's so rare to find a nutrition expert that has both the functional medicine world, but then also the scientific background of a dietitian. That usually they're hiring health coaches that, of course, are extremely, I think health coaches are, you know, so important in our future and being able to provide support for people, but that because you don't have to have, you know, all of the scientific training and the like dietetic internship and things that there can be limitations. So I actually refer to health coaches and collaborate with them, but a lot of functional medicine doctors have voiced to me that it's been hard to find 
someone that's a dietitian and has a functional medicine approach because all the dietitians that they know are like recommending insure and right, <laughs> right, right. You know the typical um, hospital-based foods. So I believe that it's really important to provide additional mentorship to people that are in the nutrition field. That especially dietitians and certified nutrition specialists that are looking to you know learn more about functional medicine. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, Bridget, I just have one more question for you, oh, which would be... here we go. Do you have a favorite vegetable? And, and why? And why? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> I'm actually, like, currently in my office, I have a sign that says, every day I'm Brussels, and oh, there's pictures nice. of Brussels sprouts that I awesome. just yes. looked at as I was thinking about that. Awesome. Uh, so I'd have to say Brussels sprouts. <laughs> every day I'm Brussels. I love that answer. And <laughs> I love that sign that you have. That's excellent. And I love Brussels sprouts. Me too. So that's perfect. Them. Well, How do you guys like them? You know, I didn't even eat Brussels sprouts until like a couple of years ago as a grown-up, which is embarrassing, though true. I think that's pretty common. Is it? I think that I is very so. common. I like them so much because they're so versatile, I feel like. You can cook them, as long as you're not boiling them, <laughs> you're, you can cook them a million different ways and they, they're yeah. always delicious. Yeah, you can put whatever sort of, you can caramelize them, you can cook them with mustard. There's just so many different ways you can hmm. cook them and they're, they're good. That's true. Yeah, that's a really good point. They're super versatile. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you so much, Bridget, for, for coming on with us. I think we really learned a lot and, and we'll definitely be learning more on your website and following you on your website. Just wishing you the best and, and make sure and, and stay in touch and keep doing all that great work that you're doing out there. Thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing. So I love the functional medicine community. Yeah. Us too. Perfect. Well, take care, Bridget. We'll talk again real soon. Sounds good. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, I uh, I really mean it when I say it this time. Hmm. That went well. It did. That was a lot you know, of information. I, I actually learned a lot of stuff, and there's some really important profundities in there. Yes. And right. by the way, it's not that I don't mean it when I say that went well oh, for the previous episodes. Oh, look what you've done. But mm. that really, I mean, that that was super. Yeah, that really cool. She's like, like this Confucius. She comes up with these intermittent little bits of knowledge and wisdom. Yeah. I go, oh, that was really cool. Yeah, that was excellent. Speaking of profound and Confucius. What? What? We also need to do a disclaimer, but oh. we should have Hugh Grant do it. I love it. Well, the contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only, not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Thank you so much for listening. Wait, that that's not Hugh Grant. That's Oliver. Let's talk about it next time. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Will Cole. Podcaster, author, physician, influencer. It's going to be fun. Check it out. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net.